Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm in the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation. Today I have with me Chris DeSantis. With over 35 years of experience, Chris's philosophy boils down to being a humanist and an optimist. He doesn't believe in the dichotomy of high potential versus low potential human beings, but rather that in the right circumstances with the right support, the resources and knowledge, everyone is capable of great things. And today we're going to be talking about generational dynamics and cohorts, right? That is correct. And I can't believe it. You've got a wonderful podcast yourself and a, and a great book, which we'll get into but you were telling me this is the first time that you've actually been a guest on a podcast. I find that hard to believe. Is that true? That is true, Brian. I, I think this is, a, that's why I may be, a, I may appear a little nervous from time to time because I'm not used to being asked questions. I'm used to answering questions for others. So this is a different experience. I hope it goes well for everyone involved. <laughs> oh, I mean, based on the podcast that, that you have and your background, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. And we initially connected, you presented at a family office conference but I don't know, it was pre-COVID. It was probably five or six years ago. Does that sound right? That could be right. Because I've done, I've done enough. Yeah, that sounds right to me. I've been, I've been speaking on this particular topic for probably about 15 years or so. So, so let's kind of jump right in. Sure. This, and you talk about this in your book. I think oftentimes this subject gets dismissed as being a soft science or it's too squishy. Maybe it's just demographers you know, putting out papers to justify their existence. Could you maybe uh, address this misconception why it really is important to have this this generational cohort perspective, especially how it involves the dynamics of the modern workplace? 
Yeah, it's 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 a little bit of a complex question because I, I think the generational topic gets a bad rap simply because people who speak to it often categorize these groups as as monolithic, as if this is who you are by virtue of these are the years in which you were born. And I think this is as much a perceptual difference as it is an actual difference. And I think the actual differences between us aren't that great, but they're sufficient enough to recognize them. I think the perceptual differences have been exacerbated because that's what we hear. We hear these, 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 these headlines about the other, and then that reinforces a perceptual view. I don't, and if I can elaborate a little bit, I just don't think we're designed for the masses. You see, we're designed for small groups of humans. And so we're trying to apply ourselves sort of what we know. I, I, I like this author, Pascal Boyer, who talks about this. He says, this is folk sociology. We, we, are, we are designed for these small groups, and yet we're among these large masses. And so what we tend to do is we tend to think that when we meet somebody, they are representative of the mass. And so this is part of the perceptual difference that is reinforced by larger groups or by, by, the, by the news media to a, to a great degree. So what we end up having is, I believe this is who you are, and it becomes in some ways self-fulfilling because I expect you to behave that way. And so you are treated that way, which then in fact reinforces that, which is also from another book by a man named Lieberman. So I think that's an interesting, oh, anyway, I, go ahead. No, the, the cycle continues, right? And, and there is right. this concept in theory that we can't really maintain more than I think 50 some odd relationships. And that's why these, these tribes tend to form within structured society and cultures, right? Yeah, that's sort of the Dunbar number runs around. He used to, I think it was around 150, although there's some dispute about that number now because we're able to sort of have relationships that, that go beyond that. But tribally, we're about 150, but you're right. And, and you talk about this in the book, which is why I find you irritating, which we're going to link to it. And I highly recommend people check it out. Navigating generational friction at work. You talk about how these generational stereotypes are really more of a function of the, the observer's perception or overlay of their own issues onto this other generation, almost as much as the actual characteristics of the generation itself, right? Yes. See, see, one of the challenges with any, any worldview, because we each have our own worldview, is we think we're the objective worldview in the sense that we are the right way to be. We're the sane ones. And then anyone who deviates from how we would act in a situation, then we think, what's wrong with them? Which is very interesting, because I think the first thought should be, they're acting in this situation, and they are rational human beings. What might I not be understanding that they're doing? Uh, as opposed to they're doing something wrong, you see, our, our default. So before we get into the, the brass tacks here, could you maybe, we're going to throw out some terms that maybe not sure. everybody is familiar with, baby boomer, Gen Z, Gen X, millennial. Could, could you maybe give, I know, I think you, you use Pew or maybe Brookings to define it, but could you give the, the dates yeah. and, and, and what the definitions are just so that we can have some context moving forward? Sure, sure. And, and for your listeners, there's the traditionalists that precede the baby boomers. And I believe that the rough years for that are around 1922 to about 1943. Then we get into this boomer crowd, and that's my generation, of course. And baby boomers were part of that. The name came from the baby boom. So many of us were born after the war. And that was about 44 to 64. And then after us came this, this very unusual generation that gets no press at all, quite frankly. And that's this Gen X crowd. 
And they were born around 1965, right around through about 1981. And then, of course, now, by the way, these, these categories are, are, are constructs. They're not necessarily, and I'll talk to that a little later. And then the next group is, are the millennials. And of course, they were the reason I'm probably hired most simply because they, their noise was so great. They were so different in terms of how they accessed or how they came into the workplace. And they're about 1982 to about 1996. And so again, after them, we've now got this Gen Z who are just entering the workplace and they're born around 1997 to about 2012. And the latest I've heard is Gen Alpha, which is born after 2012 is the next generation. That's just a placeholder name because I think they're starting the alphabet again. So we're <laughs> sweeping around. <laughs> That's really helpful. Thank you. And like sure. you said, you're a member of the, of the boomers. Exactly. Um, I'm technically a millennial and we'll probably get into some, some diagnosis of yeah. myself because I, I think that'll be kind of fun. I'm born in 1982. So I'm just oh, yes. on the bridge there between, you know, I do have some Gen X characteristics as well as some very much millennial characteristics. Cause I'm right. And, and that, it, that, that correlates my father with the youngest of three brothers. So he had the tail end of the baby boomers himself. And so, if I could speak to that, just yeah, please. because. This is one of the challenges with this. Uh, this again, when you describe the Gen Xer or the Millennial, you're you're describing a norm, not you're, you're not describing an individual. And so you, are, as a case in point, Brian, you are you were born at the a beginning of 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 one wave and and the end of another. And I I use this in the book. I talk about generational waves. There's a first wave of a generation sort of shapes the perception, and those who are born later sort of have to live within the construct. And then as you wash into the next generation, as it were, we, it starts to dilute some of those characteristics and new characteristics sort of emerge that we then define this next group as possessing. So you are in the catbird seat because you have access to two distinct sort of generational views, which I think allows you a greater purview, which I think serves you more than, than hinders you. But it's also one of the reasons we create these minor, these mini generations, because you don't feel you fit. You're an exennial. Exennial is sort of that, 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 that no man's land between. So, uh, and that's why you create these sort of name holders for a smaller group. Fascinating. The, the part of the book that I liked the most were these, these caveats uh, where oh. you kind of, you, you, you push back on some of these maybe un, uninformed or disinformed stereotypes that people throw around could could we maybe just highlight some of them the, the first one i'll get you started that generational narratives are not destiny could could you no. un unpack that a little bit yeah th th this this is j th the fact that you are in this category as i named that by virtue of birth is not necessarily who you are who you are is a consequence of whatever your story is and your story is how you were raised and so what was the experiences that you had growing up? And then as a consequence of that, what will you choose to be subsequent to that? You are not, you are not destined to be a millennial in, in your interactions. You are who you are as a consequence of what you want. I'll give you, for instance, in your own world, Brian, is that you were, you were probably moving up through the ranks, not because you were indicative of, of the millennial, but rather because you carried traits of the generation that was judging you. And so you were weeded out of the herd, as it were, uh, relative to your contributions as they saw you are closer to who I am than further away. This makes it harder for somebody who embraces a very different worldview 
to assimilate to a group of people who are judging them from their worldview, which, uh, again, this is what we tend to do. We look for people like me, the PLNs. And the, the second and third caveats, I think, directly relate to one another, that these narratives are neither global nor universal, no. but they apply to a certain segment of the population. So I want you to comment on that, but also, if you could tie into the, the concept that, you know, oftentimes our zip code and level of affluence are going yes. to be big determinants into our characteristics, more so than these generational divides in many ways. Yes. It's a very interesting, in fact, the zip code or the socioeconomic background is the thing that we do not discuss uh, in work. And it is one of the differentiators of who we are, because one of the differentiators of who we are is what access you had to things growing up in terms of education, the parent. And I, I, I focus in my book quite a bit on the, on the parenting model. And the parenting model that I discuss is that is appropriate to the middle classes and above in the United States. I also make the point too, that this isn't global in, in the sense that you have to take into the, uh, the uh, socioeconomics of, of where you are in the t- in, when you're growing up. And the globe does not have the same socioeconomics across the globe. They are different in, in terms, of, and they're also cyclical relative to each individual culture, which is another differentiator. Culture determines how we are. We are a non-traditional culture in the United States. So you can sort of grow up to be something different than you or than, than somebody who was before you. But if you are in a traditional society, a more traditional society, you are more constrained relative to what you can do. Now, having said that, though, you will see this use of the word millennial or Gen X on a global scale, but it's really not indicative of who they are. And the other thing is what happened in your society when you were becoming of age. So, for instance, when I was a little kid, we had people landing on the moon. Well, that was not a global phenomenon, although it was global, but it, it was more of a U.S. phenomenon. And so it impacts my sensibility about how we can do anything, sort of the optimism that is infused in my generation. But is that not necessarily what's happening in, in Asia or South America at the time? So th- those are some of the... Ch- I will say this about the millennial, though, in the middle classes in the United States and probably in Europe and the upper middle classes and above in, in South America and Southeast Asia, these kids are being raised in very similar capacities. We are seeing the inception of sort of the transnational citizen, I think, because they have similarities. And so in that sense, they're, they also, as a consequence, which I think is interesting, I think that you, you in particular, Brian, your group of millennials is probably the most competitive of all of us. You're quite competitive in what you want. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, you, you're using com- competition. You are aware that the competition is not local, it's global. Mm. And w- those of you that have the education and sort of the, the worldview, and by the way, 80% of you will travel and see more of the world, and you have your access to the world in terms of the internet, so your views are, 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 are global in, in some respects. Uh, and also, you use competition in the Greek sense. When I say competition, it means strive together. You are far more willing to be collaborative and give over to teammates that which they do well if you can do what you do well and together you do something uh, synergistically. And and this is a good segue into this this parenting model because my wife yeah. and I talk about this a lot. She's also born in 82. Uh, we're both yeah. firstborns. This global citizenry com- complex, mm-hmm. I think, really informs the way that we try to educate and as you say, maybe curate our children because our perspective and our global worldview 
reinforces this idea that it's an extremely competitive marketplace for talent yeah. today. And we put a lot of resources, be it time, capital, et cetera, into our children to try to prepare them for this, 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 you know, marketplace without any kind of hard barriers when it comes to geography. Is that what you've seen as well? Yes, I think uh, this is one of the challenges that you're facing. You are, you are, you are seeing how, how, this world, as it were, as it were, and the opportunities are out there, but they're op- out there for the, uh, those who are most prepared. And so I like the phrase you're using. You're curating your, your childhoods, your children's sort of childhood to some degree. The challenge with that is, is that this is from an interesting book called The Price of Privilege, is that this puts some pressure on children in the sense that they have to fulfill this, this notion to some degree because they don't want to disappoint you. So uh, I think one of the challenges is, yes, you are preparing them effectively, and but yet at the same time, it's creating some level of anxiety in some of them as a consequence of that. This competition, it becomes inherent in how they operate. And so that's a challenge. So the, but the parenting model on the other side of this, it is a most loving model. You are creating lovely citizens and they are fully engaged and they are highly assertive, but there is Every choice we make in life has consequences. So I wouldn't change your parenting models if that were if that were part of the question. <laughs> no, I mean I, I think it's a healthy <laughs> conversation to have to, to yeah. even recognize the fact that you have a parenting model because it yes, it, it is. is so instinctive and there's not a lot of thought put into it. Right? It just seems like this is the the cohesive community that we're a part of, and it's what the expectation is. Yeah. And it, it's hard to have an outsider's view of, of how you're operating day to day with your children. Well, it's an interesting thing. I believe you as parents right now, Brian, you and your wife are under more pressure as parents to conform to the behaviors of the other parents. Because one of the challenges here is you're vetting your friend's children, or you're, vet, you're vetting your children's friends, excuse me, and you are meeting their parents as part of that vetting process. And so what's happening here, and this is to your point earlier about the socioeconomics, we're meeting like to like. The children are meeting like to like in the socioeconomic. This is called assortative mating when they become adults. And so what happens here was this is this crowd of people that are like others in their crowd. Uh, we can be in, uh, different in any other category, but socioeconomic. And so you have to conform. So if you don't have the baby seat in the car, you're not doing well. If you, if you don't show up at the games where the other, you're not doing well. So these little things are forcing you to socialize in the way they socialize. It's, it, it, this isn't the same model that I was raised in. I was raised in a very different model. So you do a good job of, of, of towing this line between being informative and providing pr- perspective without being judgmental. But yeah. I think you, you can be judgmental with me. Do you think a lot of this with millennial parenting today is is performative or or signaling purely more than it is actually affecting change within your children? Well, it's it's an interesting question because that 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 goes down that that um, you have to get pretty granular on this. Like, for instance, what is the actual intent of that behavior, as opposed to what is the observed uh, conclusion of the behavior? So, in that sense, I think it's it's challenging. But I do think that there is a performative aspect to life in general today because everything has the possibility of being filmed or recorded or being reported on. So I, I think that, again, that's a, another constrictive aspect of how you have to raise your children, which I, I, I wish we gave them more. Here's the difference between how you are raising your children and how boomers raised you millennials. 
boomers who raised your millennials removed all the obstacles relative to what the child could do, meaning that look, I'm going to, I'm going to get everything out of your way. And I'm going to, they're the ones who show up at those job interviews, right? And instead of their children say, is this a good place for my child to work? You have nuanced this model in the sense that you are not removing obstacles, but rather you're discussing the consequences of the choices they're making. So you're in dialogue with them saying, Hey, you know, it's okay. You could do that. But here's, have you thought about why this will, what, what this might happen as you do that? So you're using much more of a Socratic method to guide them as opposed to a, a directive method. Do you, do you follow that? It's nuanced in the difference. Yeah. My wife is, has a master's and a PhD in early childhood education and works at an all girls, a private school, a, a very elite school here in Nashville. And her number one statement to our children, I think I've got a nine-year-old and a six-year-old to date has been choices have consequences. Yeah, there you go. There you go. She is modeling. She's, she, she's a poster child for, for the modern woman in terms of uh, motherhood. Yeah, she, she works full-time. She always has she, she, oh, yeah. a, a great mom. That's very important. And part of the work, I think, is her own, her own personal identity. But, but also she wants to demonstrate to our children that this is an example that that you should that you should look for in your own mate or spouse or into the world today that that mom is also a full-time worker that's important to her oh no no you you're using much more of a again this is a, a slightly a distancing model in my mind in the sense that you are the role model as opposed to the 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 sculptor you see you're not sculpting your children in terms of your 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 modeling and saying now you you could choose to emulate this even though I know that there's subtle guidance in the direction of the emulation, but it is not highly directive in the same way that the, the millennial, I believe, was raised. And but again, I'm, I'm, in my book, I, may, I'm, I know I speak in some level of generalization, and I'm talking normatively versus individually. So maybe give an example. I would think that the, the majority of our listeners are baby boomers and millennials, could you maybe, you do a great job in the, in the book, but could you use an example of a, a parenting style that a, a boomers experience versus <laughs> how they parented their children, like how my folks parented me, for example? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it, boomers who are listening, uh, you're not so special. And you heard that when you were growing up. <laughs> and so you heard that. And uh, by the way, boomers, if you were listening too, you heard this too. If, some, if you said something as silly as, you know, Johnny down the street has a new bike. Your parents was, would have said, well, why don't you go live with Johnny's parents? They would not have sought you out and got you a new bike on this. It was a privilege that you had anything to play with rather than the, the assumption that you should have something as equal in category that every other kid has. So in that sense, we, we had to earn our way. And by the way, I'll give you another typical example of the childhood of a, of a boomer. Uh, I use this when I speak is that if, if this kid, if, if any of you are listening, got a note from the teacher when you were growing up that you had done something wrong. The consequence is you're, you're dead. You're de Nobody sided with you. Nobody even considered you being right. Now imagine that same scenario playing out with a, a young millennial, a child now. If the child comes home with a note, the consequence is not that we admonish the child. The consequence is we go to the teacher first and say, what are you doing wrong? Because my child is a genius. So in that sense, we first side with the child. And then we see what's going on at this school relative to what they're doing incorrectly, which is interesting because I come from an authoritative model and we believed in the authority and therefore we, we acquiesced to what authority said in the home, in the work and in the school. 
you come from a very different model where we, we challenge authority the, in the interim with this Gen X crowd. And so in this sense, we believe the child and then we embrace the child in a way that we didn't used to. And don't, don't get me wrong. We, our parents loved us, but we didn't necessarily get that expression of love. It was inferred in the relationship. Yeah, my wife has anecdotes of, she calls it almost like code switching, pronoun switching, where parents will come to her and say, we're not really sure about what the curriculum should be next uh, or wh- what classes I should, we should take next year. We're not really sure where should we should be doing our, our winterum this coming year. We're not sure about what we should be doing in terms of class selection. And my wife has to push back and say, well, this is a conversation I'm going to have with your daughter. Right. And, and you are, you don't need to be a party to this. And if you take that child aside and you ask them, have you ever made any decisions for yourself? And you truly important lifestyle, independent decisions. Oftentimes the answer is very strongly no. Yes. No. And this is now people judge that as this is going to be detrimental to the child's development. And, you know, possibly it may have some repercussion, but I'm, I'm more hopeful in life than this. Because every generation has said the next generation is going to fail. And so in that sense, we're, if we're failing, we're failing up. So this behavior that we're doing, I, I view it from another lens. I say this child is privy to the wisdom of their parents. And so they're in dialogue and now they're in discussion and they're doing that earlier in life rather than later than life. So I think if, if the parent is actually engaging in the dialogue as opposed to a, a a diatribe, meaning that they're just telling the kid, I think the kid can learn and say, okay, going forward, when I make my decisions, I have to take these things into consideration. But to your, to your wife's point and your point is we have to separate who is responsible once the decision is made. And it's the responsibility of the children to live with the choices they are responsible for. So this, I've been reading your book this week and I brought it into the office and my, I have a small team. There's about 10 people, but we have uh-huh. boomers, millennials, Gen Xers, and, and Gen Z folks all under one roof here. And I asked the, the, the boomer, has probably his late sixties. He's at the end of his career. This is kind of a two or three year journey for him uh, with the firm. And I said, you know, Eric, I'm reading this book. It's really interesting. I want your perspective here. This kids these days phenomenon. I mean, you're in the workforce, you're interacting with myself and, and these other younger people. What do you think about this? Do you think there's any truth to, to the stereotypes that get thrown around? And he looked at me straight in the eye and said, Brian, this is the same horse shit that my parents said about our generation when I was coming up to the workforce. And it doesn't mean a damn thing. Yeah, no, I understand this point. I, I think, I think we, and this is right. I, I make this point in the book that we're, we're each of a disappointment for a period of time. He, when he was a young man, he was, he was, he, I don't know if he was, but they were hippies. We were hippies. You know, I had long hair. I had hair, right? So in that sense, that whole, we, the, the assumption was this group was that. Well, of course, that's not true. There was a segment that, that way. Your crowd, uh, your, your, the crowd that preceded you, you Gen Xers, you were, you were slackers. I mean, come on, you're grunge people. So in that sense, I thought that was a disappointment. And now millennials are these entitled or, snowflakes or narcissistic, you know, all these accusations about who they are supposed to be, which they are not. And now Gen Z's turn is next, but we haven't named them yet, even though the cancel culture seems to be circling around uh, them a lot. And that's going to somehow, I think, somehow infuse their identity, the negative identity. 
It was interesting you brought up music because the next thing that he said was, you know, my parents, when they're talking about the my, the boomer generation, right. with the music doesn't make any sense. I don't understand the clothes that they wear. The work ethic is not there. They haven't had to do the same things that we had to do growing up. And so it is this, you know, rhyming repetition cycle that that seems to just come every 10 to 20, 10 to 15 years, I guess. Well, what we're talking here is the distinction between a stage of life and a generational view. I'm talking about generational views as categorized by the experiences you have that how you interpret actions around you. And that is predicated upon the experience you had early in your sort of opening up to the world around you. Stages of life are, are different. You're a child, uh, a, a young adult, an emerging adult, an adult, an elder, and a bonus elder. There's a six stages now. So in that sense, those things are different. And so when I'm in his stage of life as, as, a, as oh, I hate to say as an elder, but as in getting to that stage, he has very different priorities and very different, and he sees the young in, in accordance to where his purview is relative to that. And that's a cycle that continues That'll be odd odd infinitum in terms of this will happen again and again throughout history. Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Get started by joining the Capital Club, where you'll get exclusive access to alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, and an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals. You can sign up by going to our website at www.excelsiorgp.com. So here, here's my question that is unfair. Um, <laughs> okay. I, 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 last week I had this very Silicon Valley futurist, venture capital, technology-oriented investor on the show. And we uh-huh. talked about this concept that the, the exponential rate of change within our society, especially when it comes to technology. So, so the concept is if you were to take, if you were to take us back me and you, 250 years, it it would be inexplicable to us kind of how they lived. But if you took that person back, you know, from the 17th century to the 15th century, things would be different, but they wouldn't be terribly different, right? They would understand the world around them. How much of this exponential growth of change and technological advancement is impacting our concept of these generational cohorts and how they have their own perspective on the world. Yeah, it's it's a that's a complex because uh, again, this is the work of Mannheim, who I I, I think I, I referenced in the book originally, and he spoke about a hundred years about this. Is a generational change, a generational shift, as it were, is predicated on a significant change in the society in which you are living. So his point about going back to the 15th, 17th or the 15th century, society didn't change that much over that window of time. In fact, it didn't start to accelerate probably until the beginning of the 20th century. And so in that sense, we saw some acceleration. This, uh, this amplitude or this accelerating further, I think because of AI and, and so the, the technologies that all the support of all of those things. Yes, I think that could have a significant effect on a generation. I'll tell you what's going to have a more significant effect is the, in my opinion, in, in, and this is the challenge of the future, and I alluded to this earlier, and you did too, is the socioeconomic chasm. The chasm is the like, as I said earlier, when you have a sort of mating and the like meet the like, they separate themselves from those who aren't like them. 
And so what happens is, this is why we have, I think, uh, a, a disconnect between red and blue to some degree. It's socioeconomic to some, because we aren't, we aren't recognizing the differences. We're not recognizing that, uh, that I've got this going on and they don't have that going on. So I think one of the challenges of the future is not just the technological difference, but the socioeconomic difference between us. And we're getting into some choppy waters here, but I agree with you. And it, it seems like millennials, especially our generation, understand the game that we're playing. And they mm-hmm. understand that curation of your children, specifically when it comes to education and social circles, right? The concept of having a play date is something that didn't exist mm-hmm. 10 20 years ago. Is, is the way to, to cheat code the game to ensure that your child mates with the right socioeconomic yeah. circle member, right? This is the game that we're playing when it comes to elite education and, and social clubs and groupings and zip codes. Do, do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. And by the way, this isn't intentional. Nobody is intentional. It's just that it, 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 it's like segregation is in, in the city. It's not intentional that everyone chooses, I want to be in this area, but rather a few, it's a slight preference and slight preferences exacerbate the, the differences between us. So there's a slight preference on your part to be around people that can talk about uh, money. Okay, next thing you know, you're around people that all talk about money because everyone else is interested in that. So what happens is it forms itself, but from the outside, it looks like it's a deliberate choice of this group. And it's not deliberate. This is why, this is one of the reasons we have to have some kind of, uh, I, I, I don't want to get into legislation of anything, but we have to have somebody who says in a larger sense, we have to take this into account. We have to a, a plan for this as opposed to let things happen the way they will, because I think they'll further divide. You know, I'm a product of what's called the Great Compression, and this is a boomer. This is between 1944 and 1973. This was the longest run of plenty in the United States, in, in actually almost any country's modern history. And that meant all boats were rising. So compression meant the upper class and the lower class were all compressing in the center. And that's what that was makes us societies will survive when there is a large middle class. Societies become at risk when there is an upper wing and just and a lower wing. And I don't want us to risk that future. The good news, and, and I think you're a part of this, Brian, is your generation is, is cognizant of this. They, they recognize the privilege of who they are and the responsibility that they have. And they are, I think they're the movers and shakers, uh, not my generation. You, you, it, it's too late for your generation. The, the I thought too horses late. out of the barn. Yeah. Well, we have, the, we have the money. This is the, one of the things. We hold, the, we hold all the money. But I think when we pass it on, I think we, we want a legacy because we, uh, we were taught leave it, you know, leave it, leave it better than you found it. And so I think we have a responsibility to that, that we will then, in, in, in fact, in fact, pass on. And you have more experiences than I do. But I think boomer parents of wealth uh, are very cognizant of how do I do, how do I do good, not only by my children, but by society in terms of my obligation to it. So let, let's reorient to, towards the workplace. Sure. Um, you know, when it comes to, to boomers and, and millennials, which I think millennials are now the largest generational working cohort in the U.S. That's history, right. right? Like 75 million people or something like that. The interesting point that we make many, but the one that really stuck with me was it's the first time in modern history that 
a, a younger generation has taught up or skilled up yes. to their uh, authority figures, right? In other words, we people in their 20s or 30s are teaching people in their 40s or 50s how Instagram works or how to code or how, right. how to program or how certain technology works. How do you manage that power dynamic when it comes to these hierarchical and authoritative structures and still manage to have a you know, a, a working a team within these the four walls. It's, it, I think it's an interesting question because the the hierarchical structure is a legacy of the you know the World War II. Basically, we this 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 is a model that works. But when you have the the problem we face is we are under the impression that the person in charge knows more than anyone else who reports to them. Well, in the knowledge economy that we live in. It's not the person in charge knows, they know more in the coordination of what needs to be done, but not necessarily has the knowledge to do it because the decisions you make are far more complex. Your, your firm is, is a compilation of a lot of very intelligent people who have particular skill sets. And if you used just a hierarchical model, you would be sub-optimizing and they would just be compliant as opposed to committed. But if you use a model that is more egalitarian, which is, I think, I would almost say a collaborative millennial model, you will get the best of people because then people, in my book, I talk about this, you embrace your lopsidedness. You see, each of you brings something to the table. We just have to say, what is that and how important that is? I think another challenge that I think we face that we didn't used to face is the young were always in need of us. And so we always appeared smarter to them. But when you have a skill set that they're teaching us, they now think we're somehow dumb in a category, and therefore that seeps into other aspects of who we are. You see, oh, you don't know how to do this? You see what I'm saying? You don't know how to do TikTok? What's, what, what are you, an idiot? And so that, so, it, which I think is very interesting because they lose the sight of the fact that we are, we are, we're good at some things and we have wisdom. And, and so in all of those things, we need each other is my larger point here. But to your point, I think we have to move beyond these uh, antiquated structures uh, of how we operate. You know, it's interesting. Been reading your book, and I had this meeting in my office earlier this week. We run a very flat organization, right? I'm not big on titles. We don't have uh, independent offices. You could probably unpack that a lot about my, my millennial background. A, a boomer came in to see me to have coffee. It just was a social business networking event. He, he walked in the door and my desk is the closest one to the door. It just, just happens to be where I sit. And he said, he remarked, or he came in, we didn't ever met in person before. And I said, oh, hey, Brian, nice to meet you. And he said, he introduced himself and he said, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't think that you would be in the reception desk. And I thought, well, we don't have a receptionist. And like, does it really matter where I'm sitting within the floor chart? But in his mind, it did. It just was. It was something that I just observed that otherwise, with before reading your book, I maybe not would have taken with a grain of salt, but that was clearly a projection of, of his upbringing and background, what he thought of the office being, right? Absolutely. In fact, it was part of what our being. If you had a corner office, I, I remember some of the rules. If you had a, a, a wooden wastebasket, you were more important than a metal wastebasket person. So in that sense, and if you had a, uh, so the, uh, there were things here that were indicative of the, you used the term earlier, signaling who we were. And so we're moved past that signaling. I think one of the things that are, che- my, that people make the mistake of being, I'm a big fan of bringing everyone to the table who has knowledge, but 
I think the people that should speak are the people who have the knowledge, not just the people who have opinions. You see, this is where we get confused. That, oh, I'm at this table, I should be able to speak. Well, are you, are, are you knowledgeable in this area in which to share that, or are you just vo voicing an opinion? You see, I want, I want people at the table that are all competent, and therefore I, I can get rid of this status issues and, 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 and differences between us other than the fact that you know more about this than I do. So when you work with organizations and, and you've worked with small groups, you've worked with these big, you know, multinational corporations, mm -hmm. <laughs> what are the same fact patterns that you see over and over again? And, and what are the, the typical kind of questions you get and, and how do you manage? Because what is today, and I was talking to my father about this, who's retired now, people are living so much longer yeah. and they're working so much longer that we need to have a framework and structure here because in my mind, for my children, they're going to be working in organizations that have five or six generations potentially yeah. under one roof working together in teams, right? So how do we manage this as moving forward? Well, it, it's a, you've asked a lot of questions in that question. Sorry, I know. It's complex no, it's questions okay. are dangerous, yeah. No, I know. But let me just uh, start from the what I typically hear areas of, of interest to people tend to be around areas of feedback. We're not, we're not really good with feedback. We're not, we're not constructive in that sense, because again, we come from different models. I came from the model of, if I see mistakes, I, I will correct them. You see, because I'm not so special. And the person who makes the least mistakes is the person who will move forward. So some of these young people come from a model of more about accommodating. Okay. I see something going here. What do we want to do about that? How do we do that? So it's a dialogue model. We do that. And they're hearing what they do well. Uh, you come, you know what model you come from, and I'll give you a perfect example of, of uh, it's a silly example, but your children, do you say you love them? Almost every day. Every day, every yep. day. And any boomer who's listening to me, I ask this question of boomers, and what do you think their answer is when they were children? Did your parents say they loved you? <laughs> no. No, exactly. No. Once a year, maybe dad's drunk again. I love you, kid. You know, something like that. But, <laughs> yeah. but it was always inferred that you were loved, but it was never stated. And so what's interesting, we've moved from an implicit model to an explicit model, and that becomes an expectation in the workplace. Not that you say, I love you, but rather that you say, when are you doing something well? You see, it's just an expectation. And there's nothing wrong with meeting it, because if I tell you what you're doing well, you're more likely to repeat it. So we, we have to move to some of those models. The other thing that comes up, and this is interesting as a difference between me and the young, is that if I ever had a mentor, it was because I was lucky to get one. Whereas now they have said, where is my mentor? And now we have created a system where we have an artificiality of creating a mentor for them, which I think is a misnomer of words. You shouldn't use the word mentor because mentor is in, inferred intimacy. What we should be saying is, I have an advisor. You see, they just want a guide. They just want a guide. And so, but that's interesting because they, they voiced that. Now, to your other point about, and I will, then I'll, you know, is this notion of working longer. Two things. Boomers who work, this, this gentleman that works with you, he, he's going to leave in two or three years. He'll, I don't know if he has a plan. I don't know if he has a plan. I don't know if any boomer has a plan for retirement. They have, a, they have the first two weeks planned. I'm going to go travel. I'm going to go fishing. But what's, what are they going to do? See, the, we are, we are the, as a generation, we are the most identified with the work we do. And so to not do that work, it, it will have an impact on us. You are not as identified with the work you do. You are identified both with the work, what you do, and the people you care about and, and how you bring them up. And so your attachment to work is not as tight as my own.
And so in that sense, I think, and then going back to this, your other point about careers, the young will not have a single career. The young will have, this was a book called The 100-Year Life. They will have as many as three careers, which is interesting. Your children will have multiple careers. It, it, you're spot on <laughs> because when I talked to the, the boomer I work with, he, he moved to Nashville to be closer to his grandkids. And we just knew each other from a previous life. And he was looking for something to do to keep him busy. And we talk about this. He, he enjoys what he's doing. And he said, you know, I don't know what I would do if I didn't work. I've been a worker and a grinder my whole life and it's been my identity. And I'm scared to leave the workforce because I don't really have any, any hobbies or other interests because yes. the value I created for the enterprise was me putting the hours in and working. What he's not recognizing is he's not recognizing that he has skills that are transferable. See, this is one of the challenges with being a boomer. We attach our skill set to the activity we're engaged in. So his activity is, is in the financial sector. And so he thinks his skill sets are strictly financial. No, they are, they are, they are. And he's an analyst. He's, a, he's, he, he can look for a larger problem. You see, there's every, everything he has in terms of his skills have application in another arena. But because he's been so focused in one arena, He's blind to the others. And he has to, I would tell his retirement should be sitting back and reevaluating what are my skills and six months later re-enter and give something back to society that leverages those. So how does that compare with the, with the Gen Z folks cohort, for instance, in terms of how they view the workplace their own identity versus their working identity, et yes. cetera. Uh, you used this word earlier. They're, they live a more curated life. They, we only know they are the, they are the, think of it this way. They're the children of Gen X. And so they are Echo X. And that means that they have a distinction between who they are in public and who they are in private. And so this curated self, they've watched their millennials make the mistakes in terms of what they're presenting themselves on the internet. So they have aspects of who they are present to you. So you'll have Gen Zs working for you. And they will do, they will be diligent in their work and they will want to be promoted rather rapidly because promotion means more security and more income, which are hugely important to them. But they will also be working on the side for themselves. And they may or may not tell you that because this is the side hustle. And their side hustle is, is such that they, it's a, it's a way to create a revenue stream that guarantees some level of savings in the future uh, that isn't tied to the ship in which they're a part of. So in that sense, they're, they're very clever uh, uh, around that because they don't have the same faith in the social security system or the any safety nets that that society is supposed to provide. Yeah, and I would I would echo that sentiment myself as a millennial who's lived through the Great Recession, nine eleven. You know, we've been at war pretty much my entire life, and now COVID. It seems like every five or ten years, the system blows up. Yes. And that's a message that you're, you're not necessarily saying this to your children, but you're saying you got to be prepared for the, what we don't know. You see? So you're per saying, but then that, that, that says, okay, I, I will, I will. They're going to be great. My children. Yes. yes. Well, it, well, it, your, it, your it, wife it, is really on top of it. <laughs> she, she is, believe me, she's all top, she's on top of everything. But one of the things that we talked about, my coworker and I, the boomer, Mm -hmm. was he has peers who have exited the workforce that had, they have these old, these old tired tropes, right? The, the, you know, they don't work as hard kids these days. I would never, the, these, these terrible stereotypes. But what we talked about was 
And even millennials, I hear the same things from my peers. If you work with younger people though, and my wife talks about this teaching young people, I have more faith in the future now than I did before, just because I, I see this the younger people as empathetic, hardworking, smart. Absolutely, they seem to care. They they also care about their their wellness, their their mental health. I, I'm more optimistic than that I've been in a long time. I think as a part of a function of working with these younger people, I'm I'm with you on this. I, I'm again, I'm always hopeful because as a society, I, that's there is no alternative to hope. So I, you can be realistic, but you can still have some optimism as, a, as, as based on that. So to your point, I think we are raising, remember now, millennials, something like they're the most educated generation we've created. And you know who's going to be more educated than them? Gen Z. And they're also aware that education isn't over after college, meaning that I'm of the generation, okay, you went to college, now I'm going to have a living for the rest of my life. I'm going to make a living. They realize that knowledge has sort of a, what, what's the word I want here, a... Um, a drop-off, meaning that, okay, its relevance diminishes over time. So in that sense, you have to get, you have to refresh. In fact, I'm a big believer in we have to rethink college design to begin with because a four-year event is not sufficient to last a 70-year career. I think we're going to have to do some kind of, and this is up to you, I think there's a financial opportunity to develop a bank account where I can go, I can say, I'm going to deposit this and I can access your university over a lifetime so that I can continue my education. And so it's almost an annuity. I, I think YouTube and, and podcasting and I mean, all these things are really usurping a lot of the, his, the yes. traditional post-collegiate yes. educational networking. And this intellectual curiosity is going to kind of take over the world because to your point, I, 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 to harken back to this you know technological ex- exponential growth that we're experiencing, to you saying you have three careers, this is just the world that we live in today. Yes, exactly. And your and your point is right. The Gen Z depends more on the visual. They use YouTube as a way to learn, which I think is very interesting because I would never, I just think it's interesting as a, a medium, but they literally use it to learn. And so, and I think we're going to see more of that. And these MOOCs, these courses that you can take online, these, these, again, perfect example of using that to learn. And I think we have to be life learners. I think that's just the given of the future, which is different than the past. I mean, let me back up just for one moment about these boomers. Who there are? I'm not talking about all boomers are the same because there, I think there are two groups of boomers. I think the guy you work with here, this guy had he likes what he does and he wants to continue to do it. There's a whole bunch of boomers who were in bad jobs, but they were in jobs that were 30 to 40 years long because it guaranteed the pension. So they're, they, they love being out of the workforce because they weren't, they weren't really fully engaged in the workforce in the way that they could have been, where when you have individuals who work, that you work with, who had this sort of ability to leverage who he was and, and really come to fruition of who he is, and he wants to continue on doing that. You see, there's, there's camps here. Well, that covenant was broken, right? You talk about that. Yeah, in, the in, covenant, in the, right. You talk about that in the book, how big corporate world... Yes. They they retreated on the deal. They weren't there at the end. And that was a lesson imparted to me. My father, my, both my parents are entrepreneurs, even though they wouldn't call themselves that. Right. My father was an attorney, but had his own firm. My mother, child psychologist, had her own consulting firm. I think they saw this and their parents were both, my, 
my grandfather worked at Bell Labs his whole career. My, my yeah. mother's father was a, a, a doctor at the same facility for his whole career. I think they saw that world going away and they had to transition themselves in the 80s and the 90s. And that was a lesson that was reinforced to me during the Great Recession. And amongst most of my friends, we all work at, I think, pretty small to medium-sized firms at this point. No, I think so. I, I've always believed, and we started this back the boomers were the last sort of the, the, I will call the corporate model. And now we've sort of inserted this kernel of entrepreneurial zeal. And each generation seems to be latching onto that more and more because I, I also think it has to do with the United States. As a culture, we are far more individualistic in our sensibility or our perception. And therefore, we are more likely to want to start something on our own. Well, this has been for almost a, an hour. And so I want to be mindful of your time, but this has been great. One, you know, just one last question. Sure. This, this, as a millennial parent, mm-hmm. imparting all of this curation and resources to our children, how do you see that playing out with my grandkids? If you were to kind of project out, you know, what would you expect this next iteration to be like for their own child rearing? I, and I'm asking you to look into the future, right? But based yeah, on... right. All this experience you have with the last two, three generations, what you're seeing play out today, I'm curious to hear your prognostication of, of what you see right. in the next 20, 30 years. Well, just, and by the way, this is, this is a, a wild ass guess just because, you know, the future isn't linear. But if I were to extrapolate and I were to say the Gen Z becomes what I imagine them to be, and that means that they are not only working for somebody else, but they're working for themselves and they're trying to secure a future. And this will require a great deal of effort and sacrifice on their part to do this. It, it, it requires a discipline. This will take them ever so slightly away from some of the attention that they would like to have given their children. And so I think what's going to happen is they will probably, they'll, they'll probably instill in their children some kind of, I will call residual millennialness, meaning that there'll be more of that again to say, okay, you can do what you want. Don't, don't worry about just working 80 hours a week. Think about what you want to, what, what, what's your purpose in terms of how you could be something and, and how you could be something more than what you are. You, you follow? They'll shift the message. I believe we give to the next generation that which we feel we lacked. And so, and I think they're going to give them the, the aspirational view because they are much more of the realist and the practical view. You follow? They give what they didn't have. So your grandchildren will be aspirational and you'll love that. I will love that. And I love that somebody else can do the day to day on them. <laughs> exactly. But Chris, I want to thank you for the time. That's a really good way to end it. I think we're going to uh, link uh, on the show notes, but I definitely recommend why I find you irritating navigating generational friction to work. It's a really good read. And for anybody who's managing multiple generations within the workforce, highly helpful and useful. And then could you give a call out to the the podcast that you have, which is really good as well? Yes. Um, my podcast is with uh, my co-host, Mary Abijay, and it is called Cubicle Confidential. And it's really advice for the working stiff. So we answer your question. So write us a question and we'll answer it. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, it's a little risque. It's very entertaining <laughs> to listen to. I've, I haven't listened to all of them, but I, I've picked a couple and it's really good. It's almost like an old school call-in show when you take the, the reader's questions and it's a lot of fun. Well, Chris, I want to thank you for the time. We'll have to have you on again because we didn't get to all my questions. Um, oh, no, this was a treat. Yeah, it was a ton of fun. I wish you the best of luck with the book and thank you again for taking the time to come on. Oh my gosh. Thank you very much, Brian.
I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.